domestic justice for all. Human rights are women's rights. Save the world. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. One aspect of the Paris climate talks that's been particularly interesting for me to experience, at least from afar, is that unlike any other global climate or environment conference that I've covered over the years, civil society and the activist community this time around is generally enthused. So I asked the leader of one of the most important and largest global climate activist organizations, May Bouvy of 350.org, why that is. And her reply is interesting and telling. May says that we're in the midst of a political tipping point in the international debate about climate change, and Paris is one manifestation of this historic moment. I caught up with May in the first week of the Paris Climate Talks while she was in Paris, and we have a good discussion about some of the particular issues she is following closely as the talks are underway and turned to a more technical phase over the next few weeks. But we have a longer conversation about the role of activism in bringing delegates to this point and what the climate activist community has in store after the talks wrap up. For those of you interested in the particulars of the Paris Climate Talks, I think you'll get a lot out of this. For those perhaps who are less interested in the minutiae of the Paris Talks, but are interested in how civil society can affect global change, I think this is a profoundly interesting conversation. I mean, the role of civil society in pushing for big international change is often the subject of PhD theses. I can think of, for example, the Ottawa Treaty to ban landmines. And I would imagine a few years from now, the role of 350.org and climate activists in pushing the Paris Agreement will be something that international relations scholars will study from decades to come. And now here is my conversation with May Bouvy of 350.org. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. And there's a couple of ways to look at it. One one is that this is a shame, because obviously climate change has been urgent since the late 80s, and governments have failed to act accordingly. Um, On the other hand, the talks were not set up to deliver those results, in part because action should happen at the national level. It should happen by companies being forced to change their behavior. So a lot of people uh, express a certain degree of skepticism about this particular UN process, the Framework Convention, but it, it continues to be important because it's the only space where every country has a voice. And with climate change, there are a number of countries that are incredibly vulnerable to climate change who 
help drive forward a more ambitious outcome than there would ordinarily be. And the other part is, you know, the vested interests, particularly the fossil fuel industry, who would love nothing more than to see a bad outcome at Paris, um, that, that means that what happens here does actually matter. So it's, on the one hand, yes, the pledges do not add up to enough. On the other hand, the level of ambition, the level of action globally going into these talks is far greater than it's ever been. And the momentum is assured to continue beyond this. I guess what's striking to me, I mean, I've uh, observed these talks uh, for, you know, 10, 11, 12 years as a, as a journalist. Um, In particular, the, the, um, messaging I'm seeing coming out of civil society is so different this time around. I mean, I'm typically used to hearing nothing but despair and criticism, but but I'm what I'm hearing from you and I've, I've heard from others is the sense of of if not optimism, like a cautious sense that things are finally kind of trending in the right direction. And that, to me at least, is one of the more striking things I've seen from this uh, from these talks so far. Right. And, and you, can, you can understand that in a few ways. One is that Paris created that moment, and the other is that the movement created the moment for Paris. But either way, it's positive. And we started 350.org in 2008 very much with the idea that there was progressive global movement happening on this issue. Civil society was unified and mobilized, and it just needed to be demonstrated to political leaders, and then they would act. And of course, they didn't. Um, but and and ever since that time, we've been waiting to see some kind of a tipping point where governments are making different decisions, investors are making different decisions, etc. And we're definitely there. And one of the things we announced today was um, a new total of assets under management that have now been made fossil-free as part of the fossil fuel divestment campaign. Can you explain what that means? Yes. So there's a widespread global campaign to divest from fossil fuels, and that includes pension funds, universities, even churches. And the point of it is to demonstrate that if it's wrong to cause climate change, it's wrong to profit from it, and it's a way of... Uh, taking away the social license of the fossil fuel industry. So that's what that campaign is about. Today it was announced that in just three months, the amount of assets that have become fossil free went from 2.7 trillion to 3.4 trillion today. That was what was just announced. So uh, this is a great example of the inexorable momentum that is now accompanying the climate fight. But it's always important in these you know, we shouldn't get too excited um, because the problem is accelerating much faster than anybody anticipated. And momentum is only that. It's, it has to be fed. It has to continue. So that's, of course, a risk. Um, so you mentioned that we're experiencing a tipping point in which political leaders and, and some businesses are starting to make different kinds of decisions. Um, is Paris the tipping point or did the tipping point happen at some point before Paris? Like what would you identify as maybe a key metric or, or the, the key moment, uh, in which, you know, you would identify, you know, looking back to be the tipping point. 
if I can pick a couple, a lot of people have pointed to the announcement of the Bank of England that carbon risk has to be taken seriously by all investors at a global level. That was definitely a wake-up call for a lot of people that business as usual. And when was that? That was only a couple of months ago. Okay. So that was a crucial moment. I would say another moment was the People's Climate March in September that accompanied the General Assembly meeting on climate change um, organized by the Secretary General. And 400,000 people marched in the streets of Newark. That was the largest climate march in history and in the country that has been historically blocking international negotiations on climate change and, of course, many other issues. So it, it was important for the U.S. movement, but it was important for the global movement as well to see that actually the U.S. is moving and the people of the United States are no longer willing to accept recalcitrant leadership anymore. So that was another t- turning point. And lastly, I would say, and this just happened, was the president rejecting the Keystone XL pipeline. That's important because no every single person involved, including the activists, thought it was impossible. And it's the first time a head of state has ever rejected an infrastructure project because of climate change. If you start to think about the implications of that and the precedent it sets, it's extremely significant. So those are three moments all within a short period of time that have demonstrated on the one hand a growing movement with real political power, a different kind of presidential leadership on this issue responding to that movement, and the world of private capital, which unfortunately has an outsized influence on government anyway, taking this issue very seriously. And, and I, I guess of those, the, 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 the Bank of England decision, I mean, they seem the most insulated from the kind of movement politics that groups like yours seem to exert, uh, which is, I think, to me, pretty interesting. I mean, you can kind of draw a straight line between the activism of, of organizations like you, yours and others to the president's decision on, on Keystone, but at least it's harder for me to imagine that same kind of straight line to be drawn to the decision of, of the Bank of England to, to um, you know, do what it said that you did. Yeah, I agree. The line is not so straight, but it still connects. And here I should point out that there have been a lot of efforts to organize businesses to get that help get to this point. And also crucial here, part of the movement in the private sector is a result of the clean energy revolution, which again, people heralded for many years, but has, is actually upon us. People did not think that the price of a solar panel would be nearly as low as it is today. And that includes the International Energy Agency, the World Bank, and Greenpeace. Nobody saw this coming. And so that's enabled a level of confidence in this transition from the fossil economy to the clean energy economy. Um, so you're in Paris right now, um, obviously watching the, the ongoing talks pretty closely. Uh, you know, are there um, any outcomes that are currently being debated uh, among the delegates now that most of the heads of state have left and, and a lot of the technical negotiations are ongoing? Uh, are there any particular outcomes that you are paying any special close attention to? Yeah, there's a handful. The first is the long-term goal, which is in some ways a wraparound of the agreement itself. 
And this is important because every country has submitted its own pledge and there's no accountability mechanism. So there has to be some kind of common goal that everyone is striving towards. And the the goal to limit warming to two degrees Celsius, which was has been established previously in this process and in Copenhagen, has exerted a really serious amount of influence um, over climate politics in every country. So the significance of these kinds of goals can't be understated. And we have, of course, the most vulnerable countries arguing rightly that even in a two degrees scenario, their islands are underwater. The droughts as plaguing parts of sub-Saharan Africa will continue. So that's a bit on the long-term goal. For Paris itself, what's under discussion are different forms of it, including a date at which the economy should be decarbonized or made climate neutral. Those are some of the options on the table. But Obviously, something that is scientifically based and fair is what's important to us. And, and are, are there specific dates that are being um, bandied about, like you know, 15 yeah. years from now, 20 years from now? Exactly. 2030, 2050, those are 2100 even. Those are some of the most important dates. But I think we've moved past the era in climate politics where targets that far in advance are favored by most people. Um, just so what, what are you favoring in terms of dates? We would like to see an agreement from countries that actually agrees to a fossil fuel phase out and a commitment to 100% renewable energy whenever it's most technically feasible. So that's what's most important to us. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the other pieces that are key, and this isn't just for us, but I think any number of representatives from civil society, are the commitments about finance. And the talks have always centered on finance and support for developing countries, but that is no different here, and it's as important as ever. And unfortunately, a lot of the financial commitments are not representative of new finance. They're basically an accounting of previous commitments. So the finance has to get improved. And that's a place in the talks where a lot is hanging upon. And lastly... You know, the structure of the agreement is such that 95% of global emissions are covered in these individual country commitments that have been made. But even though that 95% number is impressive, as you said at the very beginning, it still doesn't prevent the worst effects of climate change. So there has to be a point in the future when those targets are improved and increased. And so that's what people are referring to as the ratchet mechanism, you know, a point at which the targets themselves are adjusted. So that's another thing that's very important to be watching here. Um, so I, I have to imagine an organization like yours has pretty robust post-Paris plans, uh, just given sort of the nature of the kinds of agreements that are being agreed to, the, the uh, INDCs, which are essential, you know, essentially just kind of voluntary commitments by each country. But someone needs to hold these countries' you know, feet to the fire. And I imagine that you are looking to the movement to, to help do that. Um, yes. What What do you have in store coming up uh, post Paris? Like, what are your what are, what's what's the next iteration of the climate movement? So this is a place where I'm particularly excited because in the past I think there's been less focus than there is right now on on what happens afterwards. So there's a couple things. One is there will be an increased focus on campaigning at the national level, and 
especially in the countries where there is the most potential for fossil fuels and conversely the places where there's the biggest opportunity for renewables. So we're working with a number of different organizations internationally and nationally to converge on a campaign that really focuses on stopping the biggest fossil fuel projects out there. And we're going to be mobilizing together in the month of May, which is long enough away from Paris that people can, you know, have taken a little bit of time to recover (laughs) and close enough that Paris is still very much on people's minds. So we're going to be organizing what we're calling keep it in the ground actions from May 8th to the 13th. And this will, this will be all over the globe. So in Indonesia around coal exports, in Germany around coal mining, in Brazil around fracking. And the reason for this is stopping climate change requires leaving 80% of fossil fuels underground. And we've been able to demonstrate in the past year that these projects can be stopped, but not if they happen one at a time. So there needs to be a global effort to take them on and to also go after their financing. So that's what that action will do. And it will be both a moment in time, absolutely, but really something that we hope catalyzes and unifies many of these different fights moving forward. The the other thing to look at after Paris is the continued work to move capital out of the problem and into the solution. And our primary vehicle for that is the fossil fuel divestment campaign. You can expect that there will be yet more commitments made right after Paris and moving forward. Uh, well, May, thank you so much for this, uh, for your work, frankly, on behalf of humanity. Uh, and uh, no, this, this is really, I mean, I, uh, as I think I, you know, I said this earlier, so I don't need to belabor the point, but it's like so refreshing to hear from me something other than complete despair coming from civil society out of a, a climate talk, which is, you know, totally new. It's like a new it mindset. And, it, and it's, it's really, I think, impressive and empowering. Well, it's good to hear you say that because we feel that way ourselves. Everyone's kind of looking around in disbelief that about this level of momentum and, I mean, parting words. It's not because the negotiations are going magically well. It's because the negotiations have been affected by so much more change outside. And the negotiations can be understood as a, as a scorecard about the actions taken outside. So that's, that's why we're all feeling positive and uh, ready for whatever comes next. All right. Well, thank you so much. This is great. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much to May. And a few weeks ago, I spoke with the founder of 350.org, Bill McKibben, about his life and career and how he transitioned from a journalist to an activist. That is one of now nearly 90 long-form conversations I've had with foreign policy thought leaders, civic leaders, academics, and journalists who, in one way or the other, shape how we understand the world. So go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out that episode and many others. And as I ask always, uh, if you are a regular listener to this podcast, and I know there are many, many of you out there who consider yourself dedicated fans of this podcast, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. It it really does help me. It helps others discover the podcast who are similarly interested in foreign policy issues because iTunes ranks podcasts higher in search rankings when they have more reviews. So the more the merrier. Thank you guys all, and we'll see you later. Bye.